Welcome to another episode of Top Lines and Tales and to a new series called Characters in Livestock where over the next few months we'll be talking to some of the main movers and shakers and those with a great story to tell in and amongst our industry. We welcome this week Willie Thompson from Turriff and Jill Hunter, beef and sheep nutritionist at uh, Harborough. Willie, welcome to the podcast and you, Jill. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, Jill, I gather Willie has been highly instrumental in pretty much all of your nutritional decisions or many of your nutritional decisions there at Harborough. And obviously nutrition is something you take very, very seriously. And uh, uh, and, and yourself, I guess, is uh, possibly Willie is somebody that you've learnt from, Jill. Absolutely. I remember the first time actually that I met Willie and I heard him talking about nutrition and I just thought, absolutely, that's him. That's what we want to be. And if you could ever learn half of what Willie knew, you would be you'd be a good nutritionist. Okay. So Willie, I guess, um, Willie joined Harbro and Willie, you can correct me, in 1984. Um, 85. And I think since then, oh, 85, there you are, I was giving you an extra year. Um, and since then, I guess Willie's been fundamental in instilling the, the ethos that science and innovation should really back up everything that we do on the nutrition and advice side on Harbro. Mm-hmm. Excellent, and uh, Willie, that's a that's a long service medal you'll you'll get now, Jill. Jill you'd be <laughs> it'll be before your day, I'd say. <laughs> a little, yeah. <laughs> and um, Willie, can you tell our listeners on Top Lines and Tales a little bit about your earlier life and your background, please? I believe you farmed at uh, at Woodnook with with Highland cattle originally. Is that right? Absolutely, but first of all, can I just say that uh, the introduction from uh, Jill was uh, was obviously <laughs> completely inappropriate because um, I've kind of you know muddled along all through my career and uh, just tried to you know tried to do a reasonable enough job, but uh, definitely nothing like she said anyway. So um, yeah, I've been lucky through the days, and I had a cracking upbringing at uh, Widuk. Uh, my dad is a great farmer, great stockman, um, loved his uh, Highland cattle and uh, I suppose I, you know, I was really interested in the stock side so that's, uh, that's what I've pursued all through through my days. Is that right? Wouldn't it would be at Barhead? Is that yep, mm-hmm. Barhead down in Glasgow, yep. Okay, and would, with, with the Highland cattle would they be at the forefront of the breed uh, back then and, and, and out there showing them and, and, and breeding at a high level? Well, it's quite funny. My my grandpa, TBL Thompson, he um, started the, the fold, I think it was about 1954 or something like that. And uh, when my dad came to take over the farm, then I think there was about 60 Highland cows there. Right. And he was uh, he was looking at these cows with the small calves and thinking oh, he was going to upgrade them to um, proper cows, we'll call it. <laughs> and uh, they... He went to you know look at look at the thing and of course a, a standard cow was about six hundred pounds and a Highlander was probably near a two hundred pounds so he could have gone from sixty cows to uh, to twenty so at that point we were friendly with a, a great guy Jimmy Forbes at Castle Grant and um, Jimmy was breeding uh, crossbred uh, Charlie Angus bulls so we actually started crossing the Highlanders with um, the Charlie Angus bull. Okay. And uh, the results were fantastic, so we ended up getting you know real good commercial calves. Uh, used to top the sale at uh, at Paisley Market when it was there, mm-hmm. and uh, from then on, I think uh, that, that really influenced my dad's breeding. And 
Yeah, he, he grew to really love the Highlanders, loved the Highland um, society, but he loved the Highlanders for ability to be outwintered, um, low um, levels of input. But if you put the right bull on them, then you could actually get a good um, cross carve out of them um, for you know little uh, feeding cost. Certainly, it's, it's a breed that we've looked at very closely on uh, on top lines and tails. But that's the first time I've heard a, a hybrid, or should I say, a crossbred bull being used uh, on the Highlanders. But that sounds like a great cross of Shirley, cross Angus. And would that be some fairly marginal land there, uh, uh, hill land that you were talking at, uh, Woodnook? Yeah, it's not particularly high. I think it's about six hundred feet, but it's um, fairly kind of uh, wet and uh, shallow soils, and we don't have. Um, a lot of uh, shed space, there's a lot more now, but uh, certainly in those days, everything was outwintered um, uh, you know, all the time. And uh, it's just a very a very simple system and actually probably influenced a lot of the stuff I did at Harbrook just because, you know, we're really trying to maximise the use of forage sure. um, on that farm. Sure, sure. Because the, you know, the lower the level of, of the soil, then of course the more it, they require uh, additional nutrition and um Willie, you'd go on to to study there. Where would you go on and, and, and to 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 learn your your early trade? I uh, I never wanted to do anything other than go back to the farm, mm-hmm. and uh, I really kind of mucked about at school. Had a great time and didn't do particularly well in the hires. And I was going to go to um, to the college at and Crew. And after I got my three C's in the hires, I went down for an interview, thinking I would easily get in, and uh, they rejected me. And uh, I just the guy says no. You, you want to go back to school and then try and get to university. Okay. So I, I did that, and it was a bit of a panic to try and actually pull my socks up. And eventually, I got into Aberdeen, and it was only after I left that I found out that my dad actually knew the guy that did the interview pretty well, and had told him that uh, there was no way I was coming back to the farm, <laughs> um, and I had to go and get an education someplace else. So, um, yeah, so that was that was that. But uh, no, I had uh, had farmers long when I was in the farm, so I couldn't actually go back to the farm. Okay. So that's why I had to go and do something else. Uh-huh. But uh, Aberdeen, of course, a great grounding, and uh, and you'd you'd be in good company there, up up there with a lot of other nutritionists, I guess. Uh, right back to your university days, would you? Well, I think the first thing was a bad company of the fellow students. I mean, we had uh, we probably had one of the wildest years that had been for a long time. And we've got some badges of honour for being the you know, first students to be flung off an agri field trip and all sorts. And we still, the, the, the kind of core of the, the troublemakers still got on um, hell of a well and uh, chat quite a lot. But uh, yeah, I mean, at that time, um, the university, what, it wasn't actually just the university that you, you went to. It was the School of Agriculture. Okay. And you basically had everything from the... University of Aberdeen, but you had the uh, NOSCA or the SAC as it would be. Um, you had the Rowett, you had the Macaulay. Um, everything was rolled into this school of agriculture mm-hmm. system. Mm-hmm. And that meant that we had guys uh, who were, you know, really brilliant on farm, like guys like Mike Kay, but at the same time, you had um, some of the best um, fundamental science lectures from the Rowett, like Sir Bob Oscoff and John Robinson. Mm-hmm. And you those guys uh, teaching us. Yeah, okay, excellent. So you 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 kind of fell into that, and you got the you got the right people there around you, and you're quite you're quite welcome to name and shame some of the rogues that you were there at university with. Is there anybody that we should talk about? <laughs> <laughs> I would say probably the worst behaved um, was a guy called Andy Robertson, um, 
but uh, he got led astray and I think one of your pedigree guys will know him would be George McFadgen uh-huh. um, down in Perth and he was uh, he was there at the same time he wasn't in our uh, in our class there but Gosh, some of the some of the fun they used to have was uh, was pretty good. <laughs> Big George McFadden would lead anybody astray. I can be sure of that. One. <laughs> well, I think if you know it was uh, uh, George is the kind of. Uh, one of the leaders of the merriment, then you know fine you're in, in for trouble. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely agree. And George, if you're listening there, uh, hello. <laughs> but, uh, I think everybody <laughs> will agree with that uh, with that statement there, Willie. And uh, and obviously you stayed or you you stayed in and around Aberdeen. And then just bring us up to date. Where is home to you now? Your your turf is that right? Yeah, 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 yeah. No, it was uh, my um, supervisor and probably the, the guy who was most um, instrumental in. I suppose put me in a, in a reasonable track was uh, it was a guy uh, Peter English and Peter English was uh, was world famous for his work in pigs, mm-hmm. but uh, he was also um, uh, a bit of a wild character himself. And uh, <laughs> Peter, you know, he he came in one day and said, you know, why is nobody uh, applying for this job at Harborough? And of course, we'd never heard of it, and I'd never heard of Harborough, mm-hmm. so. Um, we applied and um, I got the got the job and that was it. So I, I went to this place, Turriff, for a company called Harbour that I'd never, never heard of either before and uh, probably couldn't ever get another job after that. So that was me I stayed for, for a long time. And for, yeah, brilliant. for our overseas listener, of course, Turriff would be a hotbed of, of pedigree breeders in, in the cattle and the sheep world, particularly in the, in the Suffolk sheep world as well. There'd be a some uh, some of the greatest beasts in, in the UK would have come out of that that district there. So you'd be in amongst some 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 good guys around that area, and I guess that would be handy for making a few contacts too. Uh, it, it was brilliant, and honestly, I've been lucky through my whole days, if you like, by you know the the experiences you gain from from brilliant people. Um, but yeah, Harbro is uh, you know it was and is a, a brilliant company, and really focused in trying to. Kind of work with the best guys and, and uh, sort of take them on, if you like, mm-hmm. and that means that you're working with top top farmers all the time, and you've got that challenge that you've got to actually add something, yeah. and that was uh, that was what we always tried to do, you know, whether it was the mayors or whatever, you know, they're just these guys at the top of the tree. But it's quite funny because if you look at, for instance, the mayors in Turriff, mm-hmm. um, you know, they they, they really used. Um, uh, John Robinson, um, probably as much as uh, Harbro did, yeah. and uh, you know that was the, the Rowett Institute at that time, um, having a real influence not just on the, the kind of farmers but also the advisors. Okay, and John Robinson is somebody that we have spoke to on this program before, and an, an incredible man and an incredible mind as well, and a very humble man too. Mm-hmm. And, and and you would have direct mm-hmm. direct association with uh, with John then when you from when you started at Harbro, did you? Uh, yeah, and uh, also. Um, you know, with, with other guys here like like Bob Oscoff, um Bob, who John would rave about in terms of his work in protein nutrition, um, he was the guy that came out with this uh, split of protein for sort of ruminative protein and uh, then undegradable protein get into the intestine. But uh, I, I went to Rowett for a project once um, when I was at university and uh, chatted away to this mad Dane mm-hmm. and. Um, it turned out that during the war he'd been evacuated um, from Denmark um, out to not far away from our farm, and he was in the uh, in the same uh, young farmers as my mum and dad. So you know, I got on great with with Bob. So I mean, guys, John and Bob were probably two of my, my real um, 
co-advisors, if you like, on everything to do with nutrition. Another name that I've got here is Nick Johnson as well. Would he be another man that would do, <laughs> would be influential? <laughs> well, uh, absolutely. That was that was uh, later than that. But yeah, mm. you know, guys like like Nick Johnson at Glasgow um, Vet School. I went down to see him to show him some of the stuff we were doing with technology and data and uh, we just hit it off straight away but uh, that's a guy that's done a huge amount of good for um, for the industry um, and he has, uh, you know, we went to him with problems like uh, the first one was cryptosporidium and we had massive problems with crypto and the uh, sucklers at that time and uh, he just said, right, you know, give me £5,000 so that I've got um, something to to show the guys at the university and uh, we'll do a bit of a study. So that, that was it. He did a, a huge amount of work and really helped us with uh, with the health side. Okay. And from then on, we've gone brilliantly. And going back to the early days, uh, fish meal would be an area probably where you would start simply with a protein. I mean, it was obviously the, all the rage going back. We, we fed a lot of pigs and it was fish meal was everything. And of course, that's been phased out over the years. But that, that's something that you were, you'd be early involved with. Yeah, and uh, it probably showed us a lot as well about um, some of the things like the politics that were on the go at the time because if you actually look at fish meal as a, as a source of nutrients for, um, for ruminants then yeah it, it's, uh, it's almost unbeatable um, same, same on the pig side I mean, it's a fantastic source for, for pigs but uh, with pigs you can probably replace fish meal by using synthetic amino acids but uh, in ruminants because of the ability for the fish meal to bypass the rumen and be digested in the intestine then you really struggle to get that through other sources mm. and when fish meal was banned um, yeah we led a, quite a, a big fight to try and get it um, uh, reinstated for particular uses but uh, it was disappointing we didn't get any help from the likes of uh, Squabble at the time or SAC mm-hmm. you know. and it would be a huge challenge wouldn't it to replace that as you said with, uh, you know, with other forms of, of protein Oh, it's it's virtually impossible because they they don't give the breadth of amino acids uh, through into the intestine that uh, the fish meal would give. But it's it's banned, and uh, you know that that's it. But it was a it was a great raw material, and to be honest, probably should still be um, available. Um, you know, because what it, the stuff they were using was was a byproduct from you know human um, you know fish fillets, if you like. Yeah. So it wasn't uh, harvesting up sand eels. Okay. Okay, and uh, you mentioned there some of the the key farmers round about that uh, that area, and obviously the the mares at Muresk were top of the game in the sheep world and, and in the dairy world. Is there a few others that uh, that you can you can tell us about that you sort of got involved with uh, in the area there that uh, you know the bows top of the tree? Yeah, there's, there's there's too many to mention. You know, I suppose um, we've got a brilliant sales team. And most of the sales guys would be handling their own customers. And I would tend to get brought in in my role um, for guys who either had issues or uh, there was some other kind of challenge. So okay. I would have probably gone a lot further afield than, than say, just round about this sort of turf area. But no, some of my, my real um, <laughs> favourites um, were guys like oh, Sandy Innes up at Moines sure. on the, uh, the cattle side. Um, he was... Uh, he, he was brilliant to deal with because he was such a difficult, difficult character. But yet, I actually got on brilliantly with him, and uh, I really, 
uh, really enjoyed my time with Sandy. But likes of Andrew Reid, who's now obviously doing his own yeah. his own thing. Um, Andrew was uh, a young stockman there, so mm-hmm. I built up a great relationship with with likes of Andrew, and uh, you know we did a lot of good things there. Mm-hmm. Um, talking of Sandy and not going on to other um, folk yet, but um, one of the best things that I ever did in my time was a promotion that we did in uh, in the pedigree side for cattle with um, a company, Pfizer. And that was this uh, win a date with Linda um, promotion that we did. Uh-huh. And that was a Charlie Heifer that I bought from Sandy. And we, we auctioned that off to all the uh, all the farmers that bought this uh, Pfizer product called Staffac. And were you involved in that? Because that was an ingenious bit of marketing, I have to say. It was, it was, I was fully involved with it because uh, we were sitting there and the guy was trying to sell us the idea of moving on to the Staffag and he just couldn't get any company to take it on because it was towards the end of the days with uh, growth motors. And I, I said to him, right, you give us your entire budget and we'll do a promotion that will put you on the map. Mm-hmm. And uh, he did. Um, and we had we had the most fun that you could possibly imagine with uh, with this Charlie Heifer, which uh, I was incredibly fortunate. I, uh, I remember going into the shed and there was Sandy and uh, there was Andrew there and uh, there was, oh, I don't know how many, we'll just say, there was about 50 heifers in there and they said, right, take your pick. And I thought, oh, no, what the hell are we doing here? Put you on the spot so, there. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I got all these uh, unwashed, un, uh, unclipped heifers to have a look at. So I picked Linda. Uh-huh. And uh, I was really fortunate down to Airshow and we, we got champion at Airshow. Uh-huh. And we beat a couple of notables down there. And uh, from then on, that was it. She was a champion uh, heifer. And we went to the the Highland show and the Royal show and various other shows and uh, it was great fun met so many good people did, but, did you uh, bring her out Willie or did you get Andrew to do that job no Andrew did it and he did a brilliant job um, and of course Sandy is so particular that it was done it was just done perfectly you know you couldn't have had it done any better so what we did is we turned up with our, our kissed which was um, a beautiful kist full of clava <laughs> And uh, we we basically um, stood there and uh, chatted to every every farmer from round about the country that uh, that came to see this heifer. Um, Derek Johnson had a clave with each of them, and uh, <laughs> I think the uh, Highland Show. I think Derek collapsed and decided to be the two of them were just lying there quite happy to get. So that was brilliant. Excellent. We also had. Uh, I said we also. <laughs> Had a great, great fun down at the Royal Show, um, where uh, again the similar uh, behaviour uh, ended up. But we ended up getting invited into one of the tents, um, which was having a party as we were kind of heading away. And we had Peter Kenyon and Graham Baxter and Ian Many and myself, Colin Booth, I think. And uh, these guys came out and they saw us coming along and they said, "Are you guys the band?" <laughs> and we said, "Yeah." <laughs> So, so they, they dragged us in and uh, we said, we're just waiting for the equipment. Um, so we, we, we get given more and more drink, waiting for all this equipment that didn't arrive <laughs> to do a bit of a runner. So yeah, we had a, an amazing time. <laughs> it's great fun. Great fun. Yeah. Who, who eventually got the heifer, uh, um, Willie, can you remember? Yeah, Jimmy Green up at Korsky. Again, just 
you maybe know them from the pig side, um, but uh, you know you've got Ian Green obviously running the farm now, but uh, fantastic. You know, customers of Harborough, but just great people as well. And uh, we were absolutely delighted when they when they won it. So it was great. Excellent. What a, what a, what a great promotion. And what year was that? Can you remember? I, I do remember it myself, but it would be the late 90s, would it? It was late 90s. Um, if I had to guess, I would say 97. But honestly, it's just a pure guess. I couldn't tell you. I'm sure a lot of other people listening to this will remember it well as well. And, let, and let's move on to some of your the, the product <laughs> development that you did do you know, in amongst uh, Harbro there. Um, products like uh, Maximon and, and, and Rumitech. I mean, these are things that, that you were personally involved with the development of. Yeah. I mean, when you're dealing with farmers that are, um, you know, at the edge of their, their game, if you like, you know, they really are leading the thing. You're always um, experiencing the challenges that they experience. And it's brilliant because it, it, it allows you to try to find solutions for the problems they've got. Yeah. Um, and because we've always kept this link with science, we've always tried to you know, base it obviously on scientific principles, but also then um, get it tested out properly on farms. So, yeah, we've been, you know, really lucky with our ability to sort of play about with stuff on, uh, you know, really top farms and then find out if things are working or not. So, mm-hmm. yeah, we've done some you know, some good stuff that way. And Jill, I'll bring you in there, so Maximum and Rheumatech would be another, you know, the mainstay of, of Harbour, wouldn't they? So you're very grateful to this research. Absolutely, yeah, that would be our two main products that we would focus on just now. And yeah, the, the early development work that went into that and the, the work to develop Rumitech into where it is now. Um, uh, just an interesting story about Rumitech. Um, it, it is Carbon Trust approved to reduce methane. And when we were presenting that to um, Scottish government one day, they were saying to us, oh, you've had this product. I mean, maybe Willie can explain a little bit about where it came from. But so you've had this product in the market for... 10 years, why Why you only just got it Carbon Trust approved? And um, I guess the answer to that was really because we didn't know about the Carbon Trust. It was initially um, brought in to help farmers improve performance and, and profitability. It wasn't anything to do with, with the ticking these boxes at the time. So you just happened on that one by, purely, purely, by, purely by accident, Willie. I'm sure you won't tell me that. <laughs> well, it wasn't. It, it, I suppose it was by, by accident in some ways, but no, it's... Um, I was invited out to meet some people out in Geneva who were doing some work in this area and they gave some information that sounded really interesting. Now, there's so many things that sound interesting and sound good and just don't work that you go, that's fine. The only way you can do it is go and test it in an animal. So I heard this stuff and I thought, yep, that sounds okay. We'll take it back and we'll, uh, we'll see if it works go and ask some cows and see what happens. Um, so we actually uh, took it out to uh, Thompson Wilson's place out at Ochnagat and uh, his son Michael was um, he was on the farm just uh, more or less kind of back in and was getting involved and was dead keen in doing some trials. So we, we put in the, uh, the Rumitech to some finishing cattle to go and see what happened. No, I was about, I think about three or four weeks later on, I met Michael and he was at the uh, Curling Bond Spiel. And I said, well, how's it going? He says, well, it's definitely doing something. I said, well, what do you mean? He says, well, the cattle are eating less. Well, okay. And he was making up seven ton batches of feed. Mm-hmm. And he was on his uh, third batch of, uh, of feed for the, the control animals. 
and the other ones hadn't even got anywhere near finishing their second batch. So you're thinking, oh my goodness, this, you know, and, and it was a, a bit of a worry because if it was put them off the feed, then that that could have obviously you know, reduced the performance. But when the results came out, the performance was every bit as good as the control that they'd eaten, and I think it, it was something like 15% less feed for the same gain. And that was what really got us interested in it. The, the methane thing is great, right? It's fine. Um, and everybody wants to go into the, the buzzwords of methane. But actually what methane is, is just surplus energy that's been expelled from the animal. So if you can retain that energy in the animal, um, yeah, you've got less methane, which is good from a you know climate point of view, you can see. But the most important thing is that your feed conversion's much better. Yeah. And that is what we've found with the, the Rumitec all the time, is that you can get basically more retained energy from your feed. Um, so straight onto the bottom great, absolutely great straight onto the bottom line by the sound of it, yeah. Well it is. Mm. And uh, you know, this is something that costs, you know, pennies. Um and yet you know, you'll get uh, a tenfold um return to your investment yeah. from putting it in. Okay. But you've also got other other aspects of it because it seems to improve the grading as well because it, the partitioning of the nutrients um, goes less towards fat. Okay. Excellent. Well, uh, you're selling it to me, certainly. And you, you're going back, you're saying, you're, you're, saying you're, you're, you're traveling there, you traveled to Geneva, but I gather you've traveled quite a bit there. You've been in America and, and Asia, various places. Have you been lucky on the travel front? Yeah, no, I've been really lucky. Um, I've seen a lot, of, a lot of different countries, but most importantly, I've seen you know, some fantastic um, systems and producers. Um, we did a lot of stuff out in America. Um, Chris Baxter and I um, would have gone and set up uh, uh, some some business out there for um, a product called BioSuper, which is a powder disinfectant that we were, we were selling, which is a cracking product. But, you know, we got five of the top 10 pig producers using it. But yeah, I've seen seen guys all over all over the world and uh, you see some some, you know, definitely different sites. Um, so, then, yeah, been luck with that. Were you involved in some of the big feedlots there? We've chatted to one to the guys in the big feedlots out in the Nebraska. Have you, have you come across some of those, those outfits? Oh, yeah. I mean, we used to used to take dairy trips every year out. Uh, well, not every year. For, you know, did a few of them. Um, went to States. Uh, was one of their dairy guys, in Murray. And went to California once and went to the Harris Ranch. Yeah. And it's something like a square mile of cattle. And uh, you stand up there and there's 120,000 cattle down below you. And it's incredible. Um, I mean, their systems, they're, uh, just, they're, they're awesome. But the cattle are completely different. You know, you've got hormones getting in. The, the whole system's different. Mm-hmm. But... Um, it's not necessarily comparable, but yeah, we've learned a lot from people like that. Certainly, we've seen studying um, the Dar Ranch earlier on in, in, in a series there, and these guys bringing in mm-hmm. like 300,000 tonnes of, of, of corn in, in a three-week period. And I mean, it's just mind-boggling numbers, aren't they? Well, exactly. And, uh, you mentioned uh, Max Mon earlier on, but I mean, when you look at the, the, the learnings that we've had from like, so the Max Mon, then you know, there's huge potential for these guys to be uh, Max Mon treating materials out there because of what it does to to reduce acidosis. Okay. 
Okay, and as far as far as Asia is concerned, obviously the the, the big markets now and things coming from China and, and and the Far East. There are they mm-hmm. are they are they, mm-hmm. are they a different system again out in in Asia than than, than would be used to, or than the Americans would be used to, or they would be used to. Just just completely different. I mean, the they've got feedlots and they've got a lot of European and American type systems that they've adopted, but the culture's completely different. So. You know, I've done quite a bit of stuff on on, uh, on pigs. Um, I also had a phenomenal experience chatting or to go and do a presentation to some guys uh, on, from Inner Mongolia yeah. on uh, sheep production. Okay. And uh, I'd seen on Ewan McGregor's Long Way Around these nomadic um, sheep farmers um, in Inner Mongolia wandering about with a sheep and producing the odd lambs sort of thing. When I went and actually started chatting to them and um, asking them questions about, you know, when do you, when do you lamb? And they said, well, we, you know, for quite a bit of the system, we've got uh, twice a year lambing. Mm-hmm. And you're going, right, mm-hmm. okay. Now, we used to have that over here, um, but, but it's all gone. And I said, right, okay, so these kind of nomadic sheep that are wandering about there producing lambs maybe twice a year, you know, what kind of lambing percentage are you, are you getting? And I'm expecting mm-hmm. about... 10 or 20 mm. or something and he said well the target's 200 wow. you know and you're going wow <laughs> twice <okay."> a year <laughs> so twice a year and then you dig down into the information and you start finding out about their dead weights and you find that the target dead weight is 25 kilos wow. okay now okay not every you is lambing twice a year not every you is producing two lambs and not every lambs mm. 25 kilos but they've got a target output and a potential output of 100 kilos mm. per year. Yeah. <laughs> and if you look, and that's for inner Mongolian sheep, mm. and if you look at um, what our target output is over here, mm. and you possibly look at you know, the potential that's there within the U to increase that, that's where you probably see that there's still room um to, to challenge the science in terms of what we're doing. And improve the profitability, yeah. of, course. of course. And then New Zealand, of course, the so, same. New Zealand would all be easy care, but I mean, they'd be nowhere near those numbers, would they? Nowhere near the numbers, no. I was, I was out in New Zealand a, a couple of years ago, and uh, I was I was actually with one of the top sheep producers there, and he was laughing because, he, you know, he says, I'm, I'm the best sheep farmer in New Zealand, and I think I'm the best in the world, sort of thing. And he had actually come over to UK and uh, he'd gone to see some of the, the flocks here, Suffolk's and things, and they said to, I went there and he says, I'm, you know, his growth rates for all his lambs are 235 or 265 grams a day on average for, for everything. But he came out here and he's hearing these guys saying, oh, I'm getting 400 grams, and he's going, that's rubbish, oh, absolutely rubbish, not even the best of us are doing that. And uh, then he saw one farm and then another farm and he saw the potential of some of the sheep over here, and they went, wow, you know? And that's the problem I think that we've got is that there's, we've got some fantastic potential here, mm-hmm. but it's probably not getting applied all the way through the whole system as a system approach. And I think that's one of the areas there that the, um, you know, the industry probably does need to get better at, uh, at, at looking at what potential is and then looking at what the reality is and then understanding what, 
what is causing the disparity, if you like, between potential and, and actual performance. Okay, that, that's highly interesting, and uh, to see that we've still got to, a long way to go. But of course, a lot of this would be and the New Zealand are on easy care, and of course, this was the labour labour charges and that sort of things. It'll be it'll be about lower input costs, and maybe some of that would come into it, or can this still be done with uh, without the, no, uh, no, 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 no. The, the quality of the farming for these top guys out there is uh, is absolutely. It's first class. So although they purchase less concentrates, I was out there, um, I've been out a couple of times, but um, I was out there because they were adopting Maximon um, because they realised they had to top up the feeding to actually get more concentrates in at particular times. So their grass management is very intense. Um, so the top guys would uh, would spend a lot of, uh, you know, a lot more focus on maximizing grass output than we do but they then quite often allow that to fall away during the winter so um, one of the, the things really enjoyed doing that was going to the Greenhouse Gas Research Centre in Australia and we're actually looking at that point at Barley Bulls and they were they were talking about all the, the technology they've got it's fantastic um, to monitor methane but when you go around their cattle their barley bulls were actually outside standing in Fodderby right. um, during the winter. And it was actually taking them three years to go away. Really? Um, so, yeah, if you look at the data from the UK, you know, we would have, we'd have bulls which are, you know, ready at 11 months mm. rather than even mm. the, the minimum 12. And I think that's, that's part of the, the kind of conundrum in, uh, with, uh, with New Zealand. Brilliant at grass management. Um, they get brilliant sheep results, but then quite often they kind of then just don't feed um, at times when the grass isn't there, and then they let the progress have had disappear, and then they end up with, for instance, these, these uh, black and white bulls taking three years to yeah. go away. Right. So they, we've all got lots to learn. That's something I can relate to when I left, the, left school on the farm. We had 500 barley bulls all inside, and you're right, the youngest ones go away at so nine and a half, ten months. The first ones would be away. So, uh, yes, absolutely. Three years, three years. It didn't sound like it would be overly profitable if they're tucking into the barley trough through that full length of time. Anyway, mm-hmm. and, and anywhere else we want to chat about this way? You've been uh, been travelling there. Uh... Well, the Norway, um, Norway has been it's a great place um, for for Harbro, um, and it's a great place. They've they've really adopted Maximon and Rumitech early on. Um, one of the, the best things though I think about Norway is just the uh, when, you, when you go and see the Norwegians and you see the focus on science in their farming yes. and you focus and you see the focus on on data to back up all the decisions. Um, you mentioned earlier Professor Nick Johnson well Nick had gone over to do a bit of work over there and he went to the uh, the dairy cooperative called Tini. Um, and they basically would control about eighty percent, I think it is, of the dairy market in uh, in Norway. And uh, they were doing some work with the uh, the university on Maximon, which uh, was showing fantastic results in terms of improved efficiency um, and room and health. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were chatting away about the fact that it was getting used on farm and the fact that they had all the farm data. And they said, uh, "Well, can you tell me?" exactly, you know, what difference it's making to the farmers. And they said, yeah. And within a few clicks, 
on the computer, they could pull out all the farms in Norway that were using Maximod and compared them to all the farms that weren't well, using Maximod. Okay, yeah. what a tool, what a marketing tool. <laughs> absolutely, and he could see that, you know, the, the, the ones that were using Maximod, there were something like a thousand or whatever else litres more milk per cow the ones that weren't using Max One. Yeah. Now, that's not a fair comparison. It's not a, a you know, it's not a trial. It's it's nothing. But what it was showing you is that Norwegians there, they have the systems in place that allow them to find facts about products. Mm. And when they find the facts about the products, then they can actually make decisions about whether they're strategically right or wrong. As opposed to the UK, which used to be, if you go back to the eighties. All the work was getting done, like say, Noska, Mike Kay and stuff. He would have been doing all his studies with the growth motors with the top farmers here and then publishing all the results independently, if you like. So everybody would know that things were working or not working. Now, you look at the quality of science that's going on and you go, yeah, really, really good fundamental science, but not a lot of really good, relevant, practical science going on here. Yeah, okay. Information information is there, but maybe not being used, would that be right? Absolutely, absolutely. And fascinating that that is of your your travels. We go back to your early days. Who who would have been the the mentors in the past that that uh, that you would have been uh, you would have been looking up to to learn from when you got started? Are there are there names going back the way into the sort of sixties and seventies where where all this this started? His reference to sixties and seventies is just you know a wee bit early. I mean, I was only born in the sixties. I mean, so, uh, there'd be people that would be that would be older than you. But I mean, that uh, they would have started started this in the same way that not. Bakewell and, and and going back the way sort of innovators is the word I'm looking for. <laughs> yeah, no. When I, you know, when when I started with Harbour there, I suppose the key was that Harbour had some incredibly good um, guys in the field and, and within the company who were working with these, you know, incredibly top farmers. So when you mentioned pigs earlier on, but you know, guys like uh you know well, the Masses, for instance, um at Blelock, you know, they had uh, you know, a pig herd as well as the the Anguses and the, the, the Charlies. Um so they were, you know, very, very big customers of Harbors and that was the kind of level of uh, customer that you had to start working with there. Um, so we would have had a guy, Davy Malcolm, who was um, our pig specialist, would have been uh, working away there. With Peter Kenyon, who obviously was uh, one of the kind of key founders of Harbro. Um, he was doing a lot of the technical stuff uh, when I arrived. And uh, these, you know, Graham Baxter would have been involved with the account. Um, yeah, so... Those are the kind of guys that, if when you start working in teams like that, then you can't help but realise that a you've got to aspire to be as good as these guys, but you've also got to try and do a pretty good job. Otherwise, the customers uh, just going to kick you out. Sure, you're going backwards, yeah. And and uh, we we've we've had a lot of your time and very fascinating. It's been uh, Willie. Can can you give us a little bit of advice, maybe for the younger people that they're building their career within agriculture and and within the technical side of it as well? Is there openings for in the same way that you had to go into the business, still furthering this technical advance? There's there's massive openings because if if anything, a lot of the the application of the science in the UK has regressed from where it was in the 80s. Um, I was uh, I was down in Edinburgh um, before the World Angus Forum and uh, I met up 
in the pub, um, some Australians. And uh, I was, you know, just chatting away about what they're doing and how they'd got on going around all the, the, the UK Angus herds. And they said, oh, this is, it was a bit like uh, going around an antique shop. Um, he said, because uh, we came over here and we're looking to buy some some genetics, but he says, oh, no, there's nothing we've seen. And I was like, oh, why not? He says, well, he says, we're so far down the line of genomics now. He said, we've got our genomic reference herd with, I can't remember, a 1,000 or 1,300 cows in the genomic reference herd. And he said, you know, all our decisions are made on data. Mm. Now, if you were young and you're coming into the agriculture here, there's massive opportunities to use the data from real live um, production systems to go and feed into um, decision making on the genetic side, for instance. I mean, we, we work with EBVs um, here and these estimated breeding values are exactly that. They're estimated. Mm -hmm. And yet there's not really been any real progress to try to capture actual breeding values using all the new sensors and technologies that are on the go. Mm -hmm. um, so I would say the change in technology um, and data analytics that are on the go are going to transform production. And I think if you look at, say, the sheep industry, um, the use of the auto-sort, auto-weigh um, equipment, all of a sudden now you've got a chance to have side-by-side -side trials within the same field um, with virtually no work whatsoever. A computer will tell you, you know, the difference between treatment A and treatment B if you give them, I don't know, a bolus or different warming regimes or whatever. And the chance now to get really good data is, um, is probably the most exciting thing that's on the go now. Okay, no, I absolutely get that. And the, the more data we get, of course, uh, EBVs came in originally and it was estimated because there wasn't that data there. But, uh, you know, a lot's gone on since since the beginning of EBVs in sort of 30 years or so. As you said, there's a lot of a lot of real data out there. And, and, and that's and, and would there be openings for youngsters to come in into the through the feeding business? And is there a lot more? You think there's more development to be done on the feeding side? There's, there's so much more because when as soon as you start looking at any form of um, data, uh, you, you then start looking at the, the spread of performance. And as soon as you see the spread of performance, you realise that there's a huge failure rate. Mm -hmm. And as soon as you understand that there's a huge failure rate within the system, then you've got to really challenge yourself as to why that is. And, uh, you know, I don't want to harp on about commercial products, but one of the best results that we did um, on Maximon showed that the performance was, oh, I think it was like 1.9 kilos a day on maximum compared to 1.6 kilos a day mm -hmm. on PropCon. Mm -hmm. And you go, fantastic, that's great. Obviously, it, you know, Maximon's better, right? Mm -hmm. But when you actually looked at the data, the top performing cattle on the Maximon just performed the same as the top performing cattle on the PropCon. Okay. But it was the failure rate on the PropCon that was much greater. Sure. Sure. than the failure rate in the maximum. And it, the, from that, you could see that it was actually what the maximum was doing with the cattle that were affected by acidosis mm -hmm. or were prone to acidosis. That was what was causing the problem. So it's understanding that, you know, looking at the data and understanding where the, the gaps are. And that's why, uh, yeah, there's huge opportunities for people to apply really good science, but they've got to be, t you know, they can't just, you know, wander in and say, yeah, this, these are nice beasts and, you know, you'll need to feed them a wee bit more or something. You've really got to understand the data and understand the systems. 
Willie and I, with us, us slightly older guys, are talking talking about the youngsters, and of course we have not forgotten the youngster that's on this call, that is uh, Jill, there, who's uh, I won't say starting out in the industry. She's been there a while, and obviously Willie's talking great sense here, Jill. But um, is this what you're focusing on yourselves and on by by trying to use more real time data? Yeah, absolutely, Andy. I guess data now is, is so so important. I mean, we try in in most situations, as Willie says, not just to go in and oh, your 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 beats are looking good today. It does have to be driven by data. Um, we've got so much technology at our fingertips. And sometimes, yeah, we can get a little bit lost in it. There's sometimes there could be too much data. Um, so I guess it's just using what we have, making sure that we can drill down into the bits that are important and, and keep keep track and keep monitoring things, making sure it's live and, and real time. Can I just add to that there, though, Jill? Because you're, you're involved now in some, you know, really cutting-edge stuff on the, on the beef side where... You know, you're looking at three-dimensional imaging of cattle that are alive to predict the yield when they're slaughtered and also to yeah. be monitoring the, the growth rate, you know, multiple times in a day. Um, and all that technology that you're you're working with there is going to give you a completely different understanding of um, production sure. and, and output. Absolutely, yeah. And it, it does mean that you know, our, our team on the ground do need to be next level as well they need to understand what that means for the farmers and being able to explain that and, and get the best out of it too so we do see a, a change in the type of person that would be working for likes of Harbo for, for feed businesses now um, and really need to understand mm -hmm. all of that a lot more tech savvy yeah yeah, I can see that yeah. uh, but there has to be middle ground too doesn't it there's still a farmer who doesn't quite can be bamboozled a little bit by science you have to have a middle ground and that takes it takes a, a particular type of person to be both technical and uh, and amiable to the farmers, I guess. So they're quite hard to find, those people. To, to, to be honest, they are hard to find, right? But um, it's not as hard as you think because if you've got a real interest, and in, if I just use Jill here as a, as a great example, if you've got someone who's incredibly clever but got a real passion for the industry and a real interest in their subject area, right, then that person will learn the science and learn from the, the experiments and then it's a it's a pleasure to actually go and try and translate that into everyday language just for normal situations. Sure. I mean, one of the things that makes me most proud is when you see folk like, uh, you know, David McKenzie, who would never have grown up having a massive interest in uh, in science. But when you see him on a farm drawing on dusty bags, um, you know, pictures of rumens connected to uh, cecums and showing where... Uh, you know, hindgut fermentation comes from, and uh, you know it's uh, it's it's brilliant because that's the appliance of science, and that you've always got to remember that. But but that's where we're incredibly lucky, to be honest, having people like Jill actually doing the job. Certainly, well, that couldn't be a better reference for you there, Jill. I think uh, I admire you in, in the job that you're doing, and David as well. And uh, I, I do have to thank Harbro for being involved and sponsoring the the Top Lines and Tail podcast. And, and I hope that uh, a lot of our listeners out there have found this uh, extremely interesting. And uh, Willie, is there anything else we'd, we'd like to add to that before we, we wrap this one up? If if you wanted anything that was uh, slightly controversial. You would um, <laughs> you would be able to get Jill to uh, comment on the fact that now she's getting data on yields um, of uh, of cattle 
before they're even slotted, um, how that will impact on EBVs for eye muscle size, which have probably been about the biggest disaster for the industry because it's it's meant that the stake size is too big and uh, and you're ended up having to you know have smaller or less output from the sucker herd because you're, you're slotting them earlier. So um, yeah, I think I think that's that's the type of thing, Jill, where you know going forward, that's the connection we need. And, and maybe you should be seeing something about that, the connection from the breeder, if you like, and the pedigree guy right the way through to the abattoir, because that's something that hasn't happened. You know, you've had breeding to win shows in the UK, right? Um, if you look at the rest of the world, it's on genomics, but genomics are, are certainly not um, the panacea. But if you can link, you know, the real genetic information through to the actual yields in the abattoir, then you start really understanding the potential of what you can um, breed. I think it is a real challenge. And I guess um, what we have to do is to make sure that the customers that we're dealing with are possible for, for what they're doing. And we would see, I, I guess the pandemic actually has been really good um, to encourage online sales, on-farm sales, where there have been more commercial type animals being sold farm to farm, whereas um, so certainly, are more people in, in, inclined now to buy on data on data and buy online, and we've had we've chatted yeah, to a few of those. And... Certainly, have customers who are recording individual animal intakes through individual feed bunkers. A okay. great example is Colin Davidson at Scale, okay. um, yeah. who's, who's in, inputted that and in, off his own back, and um, really helped. I mean, it's helped me to understand more about nutrition, and it's helped him to understand more about his goals and his breeding program. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, yeah, certainly. Again, a high-profile obedient to do that, and it's no cheap thing to put those uh, to, put, to to in, invest in that technology either. But obviously, it's you know these top guys are believing that uh, it's going to work out for them in the long run. Absolutely, it's a huge investment, um, but not without its, its benefits either. And being able to tell bulls with proven figures rather than as estimated figures is is a great asset to the the breed to the industry, not just to to one producer. Sure. I think it's really important um, that people do put in that technology there when they're trying to identify the right genetics. And I think it's fantastic. And like Sir Colin Davidson, you know, he's a he's a top breeder. But when you see him not just relying on the fact that he's known as a top breeder and he's got good stock, he's now actually challenging that himself. And I think that's uh, that's the most exciting thing you can do in the, in the production side. It's great. And of course, uh, John Elliott at Rawburn has been on this podcast talking about the merits of the system that he's installed as well. But yeah. certainly wise words there, Willie. I think for all of us to challenge ourselves every day to, to improve is, is, uh, is, the, is the way forward. And uh, extremely fascinating, uh, Willie, to hear the, the stories and to hope our listener will realise that there is still further to go. And, and you know, from the likes of, of people like you and, and the likes of Harborough, how uh, technology is, uh, is taking us all forward. And uh, Willie, I, I wish you well uh, um, with your health and I hope that... Uh, um, we get to, to meet up maybe at the Highland Show in the summer or sometime there, and I very much appreciated your time. Thank you. That'd be brilliant. Thank you very much. And Jill, again, thank you. we'd like to thank Harborough for your sponsorship on Top Lines and Tails, and you've been very instrumental to that, and uh, uh, it's been an excellent episode, and, and thanks for your time. Excellent. Thank you, Andy.
Thank you for listening to this week's Top Lines and Tales. And as you heard there, we are, of course, sponsored by Harbro. And if you want any more information about Harbro, please go to their website or find them on Facebook. And whilst on the subject of Facebook, why not tune into our Top Lines and Tales Facebook page where you can find more information on this and other episodes.